Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Right, hello, welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we're together. It's very weird. In person. It is very weird. I'm actually literally looking at your face. It's kind of like... Yes. As opposed to yes, so down the screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it may not be as good. I'm a bit concerned about We had this. a question about that, whether yeah. we felt it was better face-to-face yeah. or with Zoom. I quite like doing it on Zoom because you yeah. can interrupt each other with hands rather than yeah. by saying, shut up. And as opposed to interrupting, because I, I think people hate it. And I can also cheat by looking stuff up on my phone I know you without do. you noticing. I know you're doing it. I know you're doing it. But you see, this is what I do, Roy. Look at the difference between you and me. Look at my notes, how many notes I've That's prepared. That's a very And now when I get my phone out to be like, uh, how exactly do I spell <laughs> so Georgia is, Maloney's surname? Our, our listeners or readers, as you call them all too often, they assume you have all this knowledge, but no, you just no, confess no. that actually, I just, while I, I'm, I'm talking, literally, I'm literally wic- Wikipediaing stuff all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I'm going to be considerably less informed this episode. Well, yeah, let's I, see. Maybe I should do some prep like you. Yeah. Now, what are we going to talk about? The Chancellor, Kwa Teng, he's had a mini budget that turned out to be absolutely massive. He's slashed taxes largely for the very well-off. And in the process, the pound has absolutely tanked. We've got the Labour Party conference, which for the first time in its history opened with God save the king. Has it never done that before? Never. And it certainly... What does it normally do, the red flag? Uh, I don't know how we used to start it. No, the red flag used to be at the end, or was it Jerusalem? I can't remember. But no, it's never ever started with the the national anthem. Uh, And it certainly would not have happened under Jeremy Corbyn. uh, Because famously, he did not sing the national anthem. Uh, In Italy... We've had the voting end of the most right-wing government since Mussolini, and in Brazil, they may be about to kick out their right-wing president, Bolsonaro. And in Iran, we should definitely talk about this, we've got significant street protests after the very, very, very suspicious death of a young woman arrested by the so-called morality police, or as the Iranians like to call them, the guidance patrol, for not covering her hair. But Rory, I think we should kick off with... Um, Kamikwazi Kwarteng. You, I think, are on record as describing him as a friend of yours. I think you may also at one point have called him distinguished. I don't know whether they call him distinguished, so I have to look into that. So Kwasi is a guy I've known for a very long time. I mean, as you keep pointing out, we went to the same school. So <laughs> I knew Kwasi when he was a 13-year-old. And I, I played I played rugby against Kwasi. So Did you call it rugby then or rugger? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, he and actually he was very big even when he was 13 he's, mm. he's a big guy so I think he's, he's, he's probably bigger than you right or maybe he's, he's big yeah, yeah I think he's bigger than me yeah, yeah maybe yeah. bigger than you yeah. you're sort of six foot four right three and a bit three and a bit yeah, yeah he's way I think um, he is bigger yeah so he is somebody who I have always worried particularly in combination with Liz Truss as somebody with very very strong views and he I remember even as a 13 14 year old his catchphrase was always, don't be so ridiculous. He was always kind of sweeping things aside. Mm, mm. I was, I guess, two, two, three years older than him. 
But he always sort of slightly talked to me as I was young. I'm, I'm, we've talked about this before. I remember bumping into him during the, people, the whole People's Vote phase and him constantly saying, wasting your time, wasting your time, absolutely no chance, Brexit's done, done deal, done deal, move on, move on, nothing to yeah. see. That's all he would say. He wouldn't actually engage. Yeah, he doesn't engage. He doesn't engage. People say that if you... I, I haven't engaged with them properly in 10, 10 years, which was actually sad for me in Parliament because I remember talking about poetry with him when I was at school and I thought we'd sort of start that friendship again. All I would ever get out of him was these um, small, offhand, sometimes quite funny comments as he'd passed me, but never anything serious. When I want to sit down and talk about policy, I'd never mm. get it. People say that if you can trap him for lunch, you can actually get him to concentrate for more than... Well, he seems to have had lunch with quite a few hedge funders and bankers and all that lot, which looked to me remarkably close to insider trading and shorting the pound. And I have to say, Rory, I think if that was a Labour government... The plod will be will be all over it by now. Well, it's, okay, let's let's take it back to the basics. So, what on earth did he think he was doing? He's trying, and she's trying. There's several things going on here. The first thing is they were saying it was going to be shock and awe. Why? Because they want to be able to play the same con that they've now played in three three times in six years to pretend that a new leader is somehow a change of government. And I actually threw things at the television yesterday when I saw him. We've only been here for 19 days. You've been there for 12 fucking years, Mr. Quasi Quateng and Mrs. Mary Truss. So first thing is they, they wanted, above all, to seem very radical so that people would feel it was a very new government. Big change, yeah. big change. Yeah. And they wanted, bear in mind, she became leader by doing this Margaret Thatcher trickle-down tribute yeah. act. She, he now, she, she, and that won her the leadership election. She now thinks that can win her a general election. Yeah. So they want to say, you have low taxes with us and high taxes with Labour. They also, back to one of my big themes, do you remember? We might talk about this in relation to Italy. The three Ps, populism, polarisation, and post-truth. Truth. Yeah, yeah. The sovereign individual. Quasi Quateng is a true believer of the small state. No, low tax, no regulation, all these investment zones. And do you know the best thing that's happened in the last few days to me? That this budget has ra- radicalised the RSPB. Yeah, RSPB, which you don't want to radicalise. So let, let me play my boring role that I sometimes do of just... Being a Tory. Of being a Tory. No, firstly, reminding listeners who may not be in the United Kingdom of what happened in this budget. So as you will have heard, as loyal listeners to our podcast, um, Liz Truss had said during the leadership campaign that she was going to drop corporation tax and drop the rise in national insurance, which we were expecting, although she didn't signal this very early. But later on, it became clear that she was going to cap energy bills. So that was straight out of the gates. We were expecting a budget in which something like £60 billion was going to be spent on capping energy bills and where the exchequer was going to lose a lot of the money that Rishi Sunak, the previous chancellor, was hoping to bring in from these two sources of corporation tax and national insurance. But what nobody was expecting was that they stood up and announced that they were dropping the top rate of tax from 45% to 40%. And Mm. it's that above all, I think, that panicked the markets because the markets presumably had priced in the other stuff because she'd been talking about it continually during the leadership campaign. Well, we talked about this last week. The markets have also been noticing the fact that they keep making these unfunded spending commitments, for example, 3% of GDP on defence, which is a massive commitment. And I think the thing that has truly spooked the markets, and this is where I think Kuateng is just maybe not, frankly, politically and intellectually coherent enough to know what he's doing. He went on the television on Sunday, and basically his big message was, don't you worry, folks, there's more to come. That is what has spooked the markets. who have already been sending the message, hold on a minute, we think your borrowing plans are out of control. 
And essentially, you've been banging on virtually every episode we've done mm. about George Osborne and austerity, yeah, 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 yeah. need to get yeah, the debt yeah, under yeah. control, etc. A week ago, government could borrow at 3.2% for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's now gone up since this new prime minister and this new chancellor. That has gone up by 1%, right, for the next 10 years. And they're going to be borrowing 200 billion this year, adding to debt that is already at yeah. 100% of so, GDP. So I think this is a huge thing. So one of the things that uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have done have completely destroyed the arguments that were made by the Conservative government from 2010 onwards. So you talked about austerity. Obviously, 2010, 2011, 2012, the whole Conservative Party was saying to the Labour Party, we cannot borrow more, we cannot spend more, because it is absolutely vital to keep the confidence of the markets by reducing the deficit. They also said to Labour, we're not going to be able to, as you suggest, create growth simply through generating demand, handing out money. They took on for (laughs) 10 years an idea that the way to get out of a problem caused by borrowing too much and spending too much was to borrow more and spend more. And quasi Corsing and Liz Truss have completely trashed that record. And that now means that the Conservatives are in real trouble in economic arguments because all the arguments they made against Labour for the last 10 years have gone out the window. But also, surely, we had a question, we'll do the the Q&A later, but we had a question directed at people like you, Gavin Barwell, David Gork, Anna Soubry. You can't possibly support this government based upon what you've said and done before. No. No. Well, that must apply also, surely, to large numbers of of the population. Yeah, large numbers of the population, and I think more Conservative MPs that wouldn't acknowledge it are terrified by this. I mean, remember, even Rishi Sunak, who's much more right-wing than Mm. me, Gavin Barwell, David Gork, you know, who's a Brexiteer, uh, was on record two weeks ago saying, if Liz Truss does what she says she's going to do, which is cut taxes at a time when borrowing is going up, she's going to provoke a run on sterling. She's going to bankrupt the country. And there was an article in The Spectator saying, this guy is a crazy fear How desperate is this? Rishi Sunak's losing the leadership race. Now he's accusing Liz Truss of bringing economic policies that are going to lead to a run on the sterling. Presumably Rishi Sunak is now sitting back here with his head in his hands thinking, this is unbelievable. Not only did she do what I feared she was going to do, but even worse, and they added to this, this cut from 45 to 40%, which... Mm provided the final panic at the tail of the markets. And when you look at the graphs of that map, I mean, I, I, I keep thinking, if this, let's just say this had happened under Gordon Brown or Alistair Darling, when you see that graph of the pound and its value against the dollar, and people are saying, the, the Troys are trying to say this is because of the strong dollar. It's also gone down against other currencies. We had that wonderful conversation last week with Eddie Rahm, the Prime Minister of Albania. We had a lot of love for him. If people didn't listen to it, they should, because I think it was probably our best. I it was beautiful, it. wasn't it? It was, yeah. They're really good. And I lo- he's so reflective and kind of wise. Yeah, and wonderful. he's, a, he's and a very good yeah, one. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. the pound yeah. today went down against the Albanian lek. <laughs> so it's very good. And it's very good at podcast because we get a lot of Albanian lek revenue, actually. <laughs> from our 2,200 regular listeners. But Eddie also sent me a... Um, I think it was an article by Paul Krugman, which was talking about saying that he never really expected the UK to go for zombie economics. It's amazing. I mean, we're, we're now seeing... So Paul Krugman's zombie economics. Larry Summers said, we've, we, we're like a, 
an emerging market trying to behave as a submerging market. Yeah. This is a great line. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's the thing. So let, let me now try to turn it around and put the other case because we've made them out as being complete lunatics. And I'm going to try to make the case for quasi quoting and let's trust them what on earth they think they're doing. Okay. Now, do you don't think I, you don't think I did a very good job? I, no. I, I think I did. Well, shock and awe, shock and awe, yeah, yeah, and tax cuts, and tax cuts, and yeah. and hide the fact that it's actually about this whole sort of you know very very right wing sovereign individual vision, which Quartan I think has always believed. By the way, so trust, yeah. trust hasn't, but he does. So they are betting on growth, and there is a small possibility. I think it's incredibly reckless, obviously. And it's a daft thing to do. And we can come back to actually what a better growth package would look like. But this is all a gamble on growth. And if for some miraculous reason, it may be nothing to do with them, they get growth before the next election, they're going to get the credit for doing this. So how could they get growth before the next election? What would be lucky? Lucky for them would be if for some reason inflation doesn't take off, if for some reason energy prices fall, Mm -hmm. If for some reason the Bank of England doesn't feel it's got to ramp up interest rates mm-hmm. and put the brake on. These are three big ifs so far. Three huge big ifs. I think it's, I'd put a 5% chance on this. But if he manages to get those three things falling in his favour, he could get some growth and he could yeah. end up looking smart in the next why, election. That's why I thought Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor, her instant line was actually quite a good one, given she had to think on her feet when she said there's just a massive reckless gamble. It's not a strategy. Because, as you say, it's dependent on other things happening over which he actually has no control whatsoever. And then, at the core of what they're going to try to do to drive it is stuff which is going to be deeply offensive to many conservatives. So one thing that Liz Truss has done, which is perfectly rational, I mean, any economist would probably agree that it makes sense, but will be very unpopular, is she's going to bring in much more immigration. That's one thing that businesses have been crying out for, which is to have more immigration. And, and how does that fit with her, given that she's there as a prisoner of the, the hard-right Brexiteers, how does that fit, given big, that Brexit for them was a lot of it about immigration? A huge problem, because sitting, I think, I'm trying to remember how the cabinet table works, whether it's on her left or her right, I think it's on her left, will be Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who is completely against bringing in more immigration. So that's going to create a rift with the Brexiteers. The other thing is that the economists that at the moment Gerard Lyons and people who are endorsing her are Brexit cult economists. Mm-hmm. Minford. And, who, else, who else is there apart from him and Minford? As far as I know, nobody. So it's a very, very weird thing. And I'm not even sure this is the kind of economics that they really believe in. It's somehow that Brexit has become such a cult that even though they probably do think what she's doing is weird and probably don't themselves back tax cuts at this time. I mean, the, let, let's actually sort of take a second on tax cuts. How could it possibly make political sense to reduce taxes from 45 to 40%? It doesn't actually, uh, it's not actually a huge financial decision. It's about a £2 billion decision compared to the £90 billion worth of decisions he made in other parts of the budget. So it's almost irrelevant to the finances. Isn't it 5 billion, the top rate? I think it's 5 billion. But okay, but, but in any case, it's, it's, it's small smaller, compared yeah, to, yeah. The, to, the, to, the, okay. to what they're okay. racking up. So, no, it so, doesn't make why, sense so why, why, is he, why is he doing it? Because remember, George Osborne was almost killed for reducing from 50 to 45 in 2012. That was mm. a very unpopular move that people thought was completely unnecessary. How can it make any political sense to do it? It doesn't. And, but that's why I say that they're, they're not doing it for reasons that we're sitting here discussing. Do, I honestly do think, I'm afraid, that they're doing it to reward the Tory donor sphere. I think they are. I, I, I really do think this thing about Kwarteng's relationship with Crispin Odie, the uh, hedge fund guy, 
for whom, on whose payroll he was. I don't know whether he still is, but he certainly was. But reward stuff is interesting because I, I, I'm not sure that that 5% makes a huge difference to I these the bankers. They're, they're lifting the lid on bankers' bonuses. Yeah, right. but then that, this no, is no, no, about, the bankers' bonuses bit. I get, but yes, but, but no, the, but hold the, a minute. The, the that five, is then related the, the, to the, cutting the, the top road the, tax. The five percent bit though makes zippo sense to me in any way. I, Rory, don't I love the way you keep asking me to try to tell you what this, <laughs> the thinking is behind Kamikaze's <laughs> economic strategy. Okay, no, here we are. Now this is an open goal for you. Okay. Okay. Love those. Uh, okay. If you were the chancellor, what is the single number one big decision you would make in order to generate growth in Britain now today? Yeah, what would you do? Well, I think be, you, you, you've got to think long term, which, of course, they don't. Yeah. And in the long term, what would be great for immigration, trade and goods? Well, I think it might be to sort of re- rearrange our relationship with the European Union. I think that might be a sensible Four, 4% thing GDP potentially over exactly. the next seven years. Exactly. Want to get that growth but even But even if you don't do that, which, frankly, eventually we're going to have to do at some stage, and Labour are going to have to face up to that as well, skills, productivity, education. We talked last week about the way education debates just vanished from our politics. And... And in the very short term, not trashing the reputation of our financial institutions, ah. not trashing the OBR, respecting their announcements, not trashing the Bank of England, not sacking the most senior civil servant in the Treasury at the moment that you take over. Well, this is what led to the Krugmans and the Larry Summers of, of this world saying what they said, because they see a country that they normally respect for the kind of strength of its political and economic institutions behaving like this. I talked to, as you know, because you looked at my telephone earlier, um, I do have some contact with some Conservative MPs. Well, it, was, it was the Pope that was taken. <laughs> and, uh, and I did have one who... Now, t- I don't agree with this theory, OK, but I'm going to throw it at you to see what you think, who said, the only logic I can apply to this, he said, this is a Northern Tory MP, the only logic I can apply to this is actually, for whatever reason, they think the, last, the next election is gone, uh, they are going to do two things. One, look after their mates, get them even richer, and secondly, make the economic pitch so bad for Labour that Labour will only go for one term. <laughs> no, I don't think that's right. I, th- I, I don't, think he was I just th- in a very no, bad I, mood. I think he's in extremely bad Because no, no, he had a weekend I, in a red wall I, seat I, being told I, this I, is a I disaster. I don't think that's right. I, think, I don't think primarily... No, I, to, to defend them, I don't think that what's driving them... I think they're, I think they're ideologues. I think they're driven by... A, what's the ideology? So... The ideology is is in a book, which I wouldn't recommend for listeners on this show to read. Oh, Britannia Unchanged. Britannia Unchanged lays out all their views on this stuff. Britannia Unhinged is the new European. Very good, very good. Um, And a bit like the last days of communism, as the system began to fail more and more, people became more and more extreme. As quite patently it wasn't working, they convinced themselves that it was they weren't doing it properly. So all the ideas from this particular group... Mm which Liz Truss actually is part of. She's on the gentler end of this. And Do you think she genuinely is part of it? Very much. Because in her heart. She, oh, yeah, yeah. Because even when she was at DEFRA, basically the stuff that she's doing now, which is apparently she's saying to every department, there's only one question for you. There's only one thing that matters. How does what you're doing contribute to growth? And if it doesn't, why are you doing it? Which is a terrible question to ask about the environment, terrible question to ask about many, many other things right, in British society. But that was absolutely at the core of her. And I think what's happened is that they have an almost religious belief that cutting taxes always stimulates an economy, that there are these sort of animal spirits waiting to be released. And that if it hasn't worked, 
under the last 12 years of Conservative government. It's not that the model's wrong. It's that it wasn't done radically enough. So it's like, they the, it's like the Benites in the days of the Labour Party that, you know, we're not being socialist yeah. enough. Exactly. And I think this is the last final absurd madness of what was always a fringe group in the Conservative Party. I mean, this is the group, I think John Redwood is very much part of this. Duncan Smith? I, I think Duncan Smith maybe, although he doesn't talk that much about his economic policy. But the Institute I, of Economic Affairs, the Tufton Street lot? They will like this, yep. And there's been some endorsements from some of them around this stuff about enterprise zones, which incidentally... You've talked about a lot, and we've you've raised on this the sovereign individual stuff. But one problem that we haven't talked about in the show about these enterprise zones is that if you really feel that growth is being held back because of the wrong regulations, then what you should really be doing is trying to create a positive environment for growth throughout the country, mm. not just displacing it to some small area. Mm. And meanwhile, having funds over here where poorer areas have to just bid in for a bit of money to build a leisure centre or something. So these these um, investment zones, I mean, it was a whole package of things that really set the RSPB off. But you having been at DEFRA, can you see why these nature conservation yeah. bodies are so upset? Yeah. Well, so the fundamental thing is that for the last six years, people have been trying to think how to replace the European Union environmental payments. So when I was the Environment Minister in DEFRA, I oversaw £3.2 billion annually of environmental payments. Mm. But my colleague, George Eustace, oversaw a huge amount, almost the same amount, of single farm payments. And single farm payments simply pay you by the acre. It doesn't matter what you did. You just got the money for having a farm, maybe £160 an acre. And... There was a fringe of the Brexiteers that were very, very powerful under Boris Johnson, led by people like Zach Goldsmith and his brother Ben Goldsmith, who were Brexiteers and environmentalists. And they really believed that one of the problems with Europe was the common agricultural policy, that the common agricultural policy wasn't good for nature and the environment. And if they left the European Union, they could create proper environmental schemes which would genuinely improve British nature. And this was driven ahead by Michael Gove, mm -hmm. who was actually a surprisingly radical pro-environment deferent minister. And then it was taken up strangely by the man that we really dislike, Boris Johnson. But the one thing that Boris Johnson was quite progressive on was environment. His father's a bit conservationist. Wife. His wife is very concerned about this. He's very close friends with Zach Goldsmith and Ben Goldsmith, whose thing this was. He, in fact, made Zach Goldsmith a minister in DEFRA. So the end of the six-year period, a huge system was made, which farmers across the country were just getting used to, which was the ELM system. And the ELM system basically rewarded you for doing, uh, using land in a way that benefited nature. Mm. Quite complicated. It was, you know, rewards you for peatland restoration. You could do rewilding schemes. You could do trees. You could do lots of stuff. But what Liz Truss has now announced is that she is intending, it seems, to get rid of that system and effectively return to the very worst bit of the European Union, which was the single farm payment under but the Common Agricultural presumably Policy. Presumably she, having been Secretary of State at DEFRA, presumably she understands that. She absolutely understands So why is she doing that? Because when she was Secretary of State at DEFRA and she was my boss, what was striking is David Cameron made her David Cameron made it. The reason we have Liz Truss as Prime Minister is because David Cameron promoted her faster than anyone else, made her a Secretary of State when she'd only been in Parliament four years as a very young woman, and put her in charge of environment, food, and rural affairs 
when she frankly doesn't care deeply about environment or rural affairs. Why and not? Because she... You also said that when she was foreign secretary, she didn't care about foreign affairs. What did she care about? She cares about radical economic reforms of this sort. She's an economist and a right-wing economist, and she loves the idea of sort of exactly the stuff that she and Kwasi Kwarteng are now doing. She doesn't... I remember her making jokes at the expense of colleagues with the Green Belt. She thinks the Green Belt gets in the way of economic growth. She would like to build over it. She felt that... Do you think she will do that? I think she'd be interested in doing that. I think it would be very difficult for her to do that because if she starts doing that, she'll lose every Conservative seat in the south of England, having just lost every Conservative seat in the north of England with her budget. So (laughs) maybe a little bit difficult for her to do that. Do you think think she's a Labour Party agent? (laughs) I mean, I'd still argue the war, but, you know... (laughs) Well, I think this goes to the heart of what we were talking about last week, which is that growth sounds popular until you start doing it. Mm. And the sort of radical growth... But this, but this isn't even clearly uh, an effective plan for growth. Nobody, none of the economists I've read, apart from, as you say, the Brexit cultists, have identified this as a good way to the, grow the, the economy. On, the only bit of it that makes sense is the immigration bit. Yeah, and which that, goes against their yeah, big project. Exactly, yeah. So the immigration... But also, if she's this radical economic reforming, why was she in favour of Remain in the referendum? Because she thought that, it, that Brexit... I remember her saying this to me that she thought Brexit would be a waste of time, that we'd waste... And she's incredibly sort of... um, She sees herself as very efficient. So she said, I can see us wasting the next seven, eight years just banging... One one thing she's ever got right. Banging on and talking about Brexit. She didn't just do it because Cameron... That's what Cameron wanted, and he was the guy in power at the time. I think that influenced her, but I think what really got her on board is she just thought it was impractical and would waste people's time. What happens now, though? Because you you said one of the big ifs is that the Bank of England doesn't... Rank, rack up yeah. interest rates. I don't see any way that they, they can't because, as people keep saying, you've got you've got, you've now got the worst of both worlds. We've got Kwarteng with his foot slamming down on the accelerator, and Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has got his foot on the brake, and that is going to carry on with this tension. As you said earlier, they've started to brief against the Bank of England, which I think is a lethal place to be. And I also I want to ask you about this um, this shorting the pound thing, because when George Soros made a fortune 30 years ago betting against our currency for Black Wednesday. He was doing so as an economic analyst. He was making judgments based upon what he was assessing. There does seem to have been access to government, to decisions and decision makers about what was coming. Some of it signalled, some of it signalled. That to me... I don't know, if you think about the days when Hugh Dalton had to resign as Chancellor because he sort of, you know, slipped a a tip to the Evening Standard to say, yeah, that story's right, you can run it because it won't be in the papers on the streets until I've already delivered the budget, and he had to resign. And this lot are telling their mates what's what's coming up in the non-budget, mega-mini-budget, whatever the words they wanted to put to it. Yeah, I think... I actually actually do think this is fraud. I I guess the problem here is they would say that they were not the government. This was their manifesto they were campaigning on. No, but there were these meetings, it seems, post Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister. In which they briefed stuff out. Which they seem to brief stuff out. I think that is very, 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 very dodgy. Here's, here's, here's a comment. I, I don't really understand this. This is my friend Felix, who's actually on his way to see us. But he says, and I thought it was an important thing to register because he's much cleverer than me. Cleverer than I. Cle- clever, cleverer than I. He also is probably, what school did you go to? His grammar is probably better. He says... The key thing to look at is the gilt market, mm-hmm. which is much more important than sterling. And the gilt market took one look at this and said, okay. WTF. Yeah. 
I'm not hanging around to see whether the signal has got anything sensible about it. I think I'd rather go and hide in US treasuries for a bit. Mm. Pull me back after the party conference or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, the breakdown in the gilt market, huge moves Friday and this morning, is different and much more serious than the currency market. But markets. it's all part of the same. And it's, could it's cause a major snafu. Moves of this magnitude in a highly leveraged financial system inevitably have the potential to throw up all kinds of unforeseen We're consequences. Now, I can now tell our reader slash listeners that this is how Rory Stewart sounds so informed. He read that from his telephone. I was quoting Felix. <laughs> yes, I know. You know. So we've now had, Felix wouldn't surely agree with me, yeah. we have now had one of the biggest devaluations in our history and it's been totally self-inflated. Yeah, I mean, well, look, politically, this is, I mean, let, let's even set aside the, the, the pros and cons of this move. And, and the reason, of course, that, that I think it's important to understand the reason this has lost me, David Gork, Gamba, well, if I can speak for them, I probably can't speak for them, but anyway, lost. I think from, you can definitely, from I, what lost, I've seen, you can speak for them. <laughs> lost, for, lost the loss of what used to be the left centre of the Conservative Party is that it's totally blown to pieces what used to be part of our brand. Our brand was supposed to be, we were meant to be the fiscally prudent ones, the the, the cautious people. Well, who that's didn't, what allowed Rachel Reeves to stand up who, who didn't at the bor- party conference yeah, and say what she did. Exactly. Who didn't borrow too much, didn't spend too much. You know, even if people disagree with the economic policy, there was at least an idea. We were cautious with our money. We balanced our budgets. And I, I think we've never seen a announcement by a chancellor which has been quite so immediately catastrophic. Well, we had the Omnishambles budget. But nothing like this kind and this of is I do markets. think this is. I mean, I'm very, very disappointed at the way that the, the, the front pages have not just gone. I think Kamikwazi would have been a perfect headline for all of them. Kamikwazi. None good. of them went for it. Pathetic. Kamikwazi. And the Daily Express today says, Kamikwazi. Trust promises world-beating economy every single day, whatever she says. She's just, and it's fantastic for the Daily Express because trust is exactly the same length as Boris. So now they've just got all the same headlines they had for Johnson. And they just replace Boris with trust. Well, they can, every also, day. they can also do something with her that they can't do with Boris, which is they can say trustonomics, like abonomics. Do you remember yeah. in Japan? Yeah, a- abonomics. We yeah, 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 yeah. Trustonomics. Reaganomics. Trustonomics. Reaganomics. But you couldn't do that with Boris, could you? Borisonomics. Bolliconomics. <laughs> Bullshitonomics. <laughs> Lionomics. <laughs> yeah. Lawbreakonomics. <laughs> Shall we take a break? Shall we take a break? <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to a proper live, in-person edition of The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. No, it's not live. Just because we're in the same room doesn't mean it's live. It's actually being recorded face-to-face. That's what you meant. Oh, OK. Yes. So a recorded face-to-face edition of The Rest is Politics <laughs> podcast with, with me, Rory Stewart. You are Rory Stewart. And yeah, yeah. I am Alistair Campbell. Very good. But the person who's not in the room with us at the moment is Ibrahim Raisi, the president of Iran, because he's got other things on his mind at the moment. Well, we didn't invite him, and... Um, I think there's a very good reason why he's a bit PNG at the moment. That's because his, well, his government is in quite serious difficulty at the moment, and a lot of it deserved, I would argue, because this young woman, Marsa Amini, has become what her cousin, I saw his interview on Sky News yesterday, the voice of anger of the Iranian people. Um, and it does seem true. She's dead. She died in custody. Yeah. Three days within three days of being arrested yeah. for offending the so-called morality yeah. police, because there was yeah. a bit of hair showing yeah. from her hijab. Yeah. Um, but it does really, really, really seem to have kicked off protests that we haven't seen there for quite a while. Yeah. And and part of this, of course, is is how quickly social media works. So the Iranian state's trying to lock down WhatsApp. It's trying to lock down other sharing services. But it is amazing, and we've, we've obviously known this since the Arab Spring, how a single event, so for example in Tunisia, yep, that man immolating himself suddenly yep. spread across the whole of the Middle East, and the same is happening in Iran. And it, on the Arab media, I've just, I just landed from Jordan, you will see continual images. Mm. Some of them maybe not even true. You know, I'm, I was seeing stuff on my phone about this kid has just been shot by the Iranian police. This, I mean, incredible sort of brutal images all the time. Mm. But this is... Um, has created, I think, protests now in over 80 towns and cities across Iran. This is the worst since 2009. And it's also but it's spreading around the world. I mean, there were protests here yesterday in London. Yeah. Um, and there were some very, quite serious protests in, in some of the neighbouring countries. But I, I think it's... Um, I don't know whether they will really, really, really crack down. They, I mean, you're right, it's hard to find out exactly how many people have died, but you're talking dozens. Uh, apparently there have been four executions related to the nature of the protest. And our ambassador, the British ambassador, Simon Shercliffe... Simon Shercliffe, my friend. Yeah, he was yeah. summoned um, to the foreign ministry and asked to, to take responsibility and to shut down some of the farsi media that is apparently being generated from London. So what you're seeing is... And the same happened to the Norwegian ambassador as well. So what you're seeing is that... And this is something we talked to Eddie Rama about, because... He was in the middle of, when we talked to him in Tirana, of this massive cyber attack by the Iranians because the Albanians look after quite a lot of Iranian exiles. So it does seem to be that this combination of this single event that has triggered incredible anger amongst an awful lot of people who up till now have been sort of just living with repression and getting on with their lives, that they're not putting up with any longer. And then around the world, this sort of diaspora is supporting them. So obviously since the revolution, um, 1780, till now... 
there have been many, many incidents where people have assumed that this was the end of the revolution because yeah. there's something so um, fundamentally fragile about that structure, it seems, at least on the outside. But of course, consistently, people who've predicted the fall of the Iranian state have been wrong. They were wrong in the so-called Green Revolution. Mm-hmm. George Bush got very excited back at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. It never happened then. I walked across Iran in the winter of 2000. And what struck me then, and then I guess it's sort of halfway between the revolution and now, is that what we don't usually acknowledge in Iran, or what struck me, is that Iran is really two societies. There is the society of the cities, the society of people like Masha Amini, who tragically died, highly educated, generally more liberal, more progressive, pushing to be a much more part of a contemporary world. And then there is a much more conservative rural mm. Iran. I, I walked through villages where sometimes I was stopped by different bits of the security state five or six times a day, police intelligence, military intelligence, Basich militia, revolutionary guard, where every single mosque, where I slept in the mosques night after night, were hung with martyrs from the Iran-Iraq war. And you can feel it right the way across Iraq now the influence of the Iranian regime. You can feel it in Yemen, of course, with the Houthi. And so it's a very, very strange moment. On the one hand, fragility, revolution. On the other hand, still a very, very strong state with a huge, deep, rural, conservative backing for people like Ibrahim Raisi. And I think think the regime will be looking at, even though it has been a level of protest we haven't seen for a while, I think they will be looking at it at the moment and probably thinking it's containable, which we'll see. Um, Another country beginning with I, Italy. Italy. Now has the most right-wing government since Mussolini. Um, Giorgia Maloney, who's gone from 4% at the last election to 25-plus this time, at the expense of the left, but also at the expense of Salvini, of the Liga, who will be presumably part of any government she forms, and also the old Fox who uh, Moises Naim, my 3P man, uh-huh. he identifies Berlusconi as the first 3P autocrat. The first leader. real proper populist. Yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, this is a, this is a I mean, I, you know, this, when, any party that identifies, literally identifies itself as post-fascist, I always think it's the post-hyphen part of that word that, uh, that counts for the most. But it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's the most extreme version I feel as an outsider looking at it, of the tension between populism on the one hand, the kind of Berlusconi thing, yeah. and on the other and hand... Salvini. And Salvini. And on the other hand, the very kind of high technocratic, austere tradition of these kind of central bankers, Brussels bureaucrats. You know, Mario Monti was a great example of this. But it's gone on since then. of this sort of fight between, on the one hand, the kind of these grand Italians with their sort of sweeping white hair and their kind of amazing international lives, and then... This this thing which which Georgia Maloney represents, but she's um, she you know she's done the same as Le Pen in France and Vox and the True Finns and the and the Sweden Democrats of trying to soften some of the harder edges. But essentially, you know, we are talking about fundamentally Christian and 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 as with so many of the kind of Christians, particularly in America, identify themselves as that's as much about being anti-Islam as it is about being pro your own faith. Family, incredibly important, very anti-gay rights. 
And of course, it's going to be difficult for her because the, the COVID package that comes out of the European Union, I think they've got the biggest of the lot. Um, so she's going to be very, very sensitive to, I don't think she'll want to upset the European Union too much, but she's definitely sort of pitching more towards towards an Orban vision of Europe than a Macron yeah, shot. So, so she's, she's, she's gone through a transition, hasn't she? And what one never knows with somebody like that is which one of her two identities to believe. So you're mm. right. She had a complete Orban identity. And of course, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader, uh, had a lot of extraordinary attacks on George Soros, which she loves to repeat. Yep. He has a, something that I've noticed happening increasingly around the world, which is a, a policy of trying to increase your domestic re- population. It's a sort of anti-immigration policy where you're all about Absolutely. big families. We've got yeah. to turn around. All gets population decline. And she, she congratulates Orban for having driven up the Hungarian mm. population. Mm. She made quite pro-Putin comments a couple of years ago. So it really sounded as though she was fully kind of allied with the bad people. And she was pretty extremely Eurosceptic. And she used to mock Angela Merkel mm-hmm. and Macron. But now, suddenly, something's changed. Well, she's not. Salvini's right up Putin. Um, she has definitely been a bit stronger on Ukraine. Um, but whether that's been for politics or... So she's changed on Ukraine. She's now making pro-European things. <clears throat> Having said that she admired Benito Mussolini, she's now said, no, she doesn't admire Benito Mussolini and she thinks he's a bad man. So whether that means that she's actually, like some of the populist leaders we've talked about show in Latin America, who actually became more moderate when they get in, mm. maybe she will be like that. Another thing that makes her interesting is a bit like uh, Liz Truss, and many of the other people that we've been talking about. Maloney is the new Liz Truss, says Roy Stewart. Well, and, and, and actually, you know, many of the young politicians we've been talking about on the show, she's part of this uh, trend of extreme professionalism, which is part of the hidden story of populism. Now, it's not true of Trump, because Trump comes in having not been a professional politician as a much older man. But she became a councillor at the age of 21. She was a leading activist at the age of 19. She was, a you know a minister in Berlusconi's government when she was incredibly young. Mm. She, she represents a, a type of politics which is more and more common where people really have done nothing outside politics. Well, Jimmy Akerson, the Sweden Democrats leader, he's been leader of that party since in his 20s. Well, let's talk about another one then because we've got another huge election coming up, which is Brazil, October the 2nd and then October the 30th. Uh, you can reach through your phone if you, if you want, Rory, as I've got my six pages of research that I've done here. Uh, did you know you like this? Can, can we be reminded of where this is coming from? So one of our Brazilian listeners said that all that happens, and you notice this, is that I keep referring to Bolsonaro and we never provide a detailed analysis of Brazil. <laughs> Which I think was a fair and, point. And you then said, well, you could easily give us five minutes on Brazil, but you had to go to the dentist. I thought you were bluffing. You I then, wasn't bluffing. You then offered I've got a give, crown. I'll you then, you then offered there. to give us five minutes on Brazil. At which point I backed down, and now you're going to give us five minutes on Brazil. Yeah, but I, and, and, and i tell you what happened. is My friend Kevin Keith, uh, who heard us have, say this, he sent me a link and said, if you're going to talk about Brazil, you've got to watch this. And it turned out to be this documentary series about Bolsonaro. Okay. And it's called The Bolsonaro Boys from Brazil. All right. And I strongly recommend it. So what's the first thing as for a non-Brazilian specialist, for our British audience, that they would notice about looking at the imagery of Bolsonaro, the communications of Bolsonaro, the way that he presents himself? Oh, I mean, his background is extraordinary. Uh, he essentially is one of the few politicians who, when Brazil ceased to be ruled by the military, who continued relentlessly to defend the military against the politicians. 
And he sort of still does. And the reason why this election is going to be so important and the reason why the Americans are getting so agitated about it, they've even had the, the head of the CIA has been to see Bolsonaro's team because Bolsonaro keeps casting doubt on the outcome. He's going to do a Trump. He's basically going to say, he's actually said, if I don't get at least 60%, then there's something very abnormal. And then there's something going on in the back of my mind, Supreme Court's accusations of businessmen oh, well, well, backing they've, coups, they've got, generals well, he's, getting, this is what generals I mean, getting very, involved. He's still very, very close to the military because he always defended the yeah. military. And, of course, his opponent, Lula, who's a former working class, started the Workers' Party, big trade union guy, Brazil's most popular ever president. And presided over a period where it really seemed as though Brazilian growth was the future. I remember when I sat on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, we wrote a report on Brazil in 2011. In fact, a great way, if you're ever betting on the financial markets, as soon as the Foreign Affairs Select Committee decides to produce a report (laughs) saying a country is going really well, you can absolutely guarantee it's finished. We did it with Brazil, we did it with Turkey. So in this film, there's an extraordinary clip of a big summit when Obama was president and all the kind of big world leaders are there. Lula arrives and Obama, with all the cameras there, says, ah, the most popular politician in the world walks in the room. I mean, he was like up there. Then, of course, he goes. You're only allowed to serve two consecutive terms. He goes. He's then replaced by Rousseff. And there's this massive corruption scandal emerges in which he is implicated, goes to jail. Bolsonaro now, every time he's up against Lula, he just calls him the convict. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, this is a pretty big deal. I yeah, mean, he got the, quite, the, 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 the president was there. It was a big corruption scandal, and the guy did go to jail. He did right? go to jail, but then the conviction was... No, I agree, yeah. and I suspect there's also... Yeah. Stuff, but yeah. he, the conviction was quashed, which is what has allowed him to run again. He's way ahead... Of, well, way ahead. He's about 10 points ahead in the polls. He's 76, Bolsonaro is 67. The other massive issue is, of course, the Amazon. Bolsonaro has always been tear down the trees, dig up the minerals, that's what it's all about, and, you know, the rest of the world and all the smoke and everything, you can bugger off. Yeah, and just, just pause on that, just pause on that. I, mean, I think one of the things that people maybe don't understand is that the Amazon is such an extraordinary percentage of the, the world's, world's forestry lung. cover. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it... And the... If you were in demand now, you'd be looking up the, the percentage the, on the your amount, phone, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> I definitely, I definitely would. I'm sorry that I'm with you in person. I could give give much better information to the listeners of the show if only I was sitting in a bar, not sitting with you, looking at my bloody phone. Um, but uh, if we were able to replant even those bits of the Amazon that have been cut down, because one of the terrible things is the Amazon gets cut down, then it is farmed, but the forest soils are often very, very thin and very easily depleted, mm-hmm. so that a lot of Brazil is now composed of soil which is useless for farming, so useless for growing soy, useless for cattle ranching, and we need to find a way of getting trees back into it. In fact, one of the things I was trying to do as an environment minister working with the head of the US Forestry Commission is if we could find a way of replanting half a billion hectares of cut-down, depleted soil in Brazil, we could make almost more difference Mm. to climate, air quality, pollution, carbon capture, biodiversity than any other single yeah. intervention. But the favourite fact I learned about Bolsonaro in this extraordinary amount of research I did, Rory, is that he calls his three, his three older boys, Flavio, Carlos and Eduardo, he calls them by the number. Number one, number two, number three. Like well, actually, it's worse than that, 010203. Ah, is that like a military thing? It's a Brazilian it's, military it's, thing, it's, zero it's one, military. Zero two, zero three, And yeah. he got 03... When he was age 17, 
He got him to stand in an election against his ex-wife to punish his ex-wife. Very good. <laughs> Who won? Zero three the or the ex-wife? The boy. Zero, zero three Who won. then yeah. spent his entire time in the city council playing video games. Quite right. And she, uh, it's uh, not right. Really. No, Honestly, you're very flippant here. President, about... <laughs> President Kabila of Congo, who I who I, I went to see in his palace in the jungle, uh, was is a big guy on video games. He he does a lot of lot of spends a lot of time in his video games. I, well, well, anyway, so yeah. the boy, and now yeah. the, the thesis of this film yeah. is that basically the only people who matter in Bolsonaro's life are his family. Uh, Eduardo, the, one of the other sons, is who he wants to line up his his, his successor. If if the polls are right, Lula's going to win, um, and that's going to be a very very. And then big the question change. is, what are the military going to do? What's the Supreme Court going to do? And, and, and does Bolsonaro accept the? So the, so this week, the Americans have put out a statement saying that they intend to recognise the government. They do not believe the electoral system is bust. They do not believe it's corrupt. They are going to recognise the result immediately. Very good. And the European Union should do the same. And these are things that we are going to pursue. In Blackpool. Blackpool, October the 8th, okay, very 8 p.m. As you would say, very few tickets left. Upper circle now, but some prime seating in the upper circle for looking down, isn't there? They can look down on us. Yeah, sure that's the winter gardens. Yeah, the ones at the front yeah, yeah, do that as well. Fantastic, yeah. So if you do want to come and see us in Blackpool, Rory and I will be there at the Winter Gardens, 8 p.m. on October the 8th. Google Winter Gardens, rest is politics, or go to restispolitics.com. Thank you all very much, and goodbye. Bye-bye.